Script Pipeline reviews screenplays and TV pilots to connect writers with Hollywood's top producers and managers. For over 20 years, the company has helped launch the writing careers of some of the industry's brightest talent, resulting in spec sales totaling over $7 million. Learn more at scriptpipeline.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going to talk about international TV writing and exporting the American showrunner model to other markets with a very special guest. We're joined by Des Doyle, who is a filmmaker, uh, director of the Showrunners documentary, and runs a number of writing programs for the organization Screen Skills Ireland, particularly about the US showrunner and television model. So welcome, Des. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And uh, let's get started. All right, so first up, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in film and TV, especially growing up in Ireland? I'm something of a film and TV nerd. I think I always have been. Back in the day when I was growing up in Ireland, there was really no money for local broadcasters to make their own programming. There was very little of that. So there was a huge amount of American TV that was imported. So I was kind of raised watching reruns of everything from the A-Team to Battlestar to all that kind of stuff. And because that was so markedly different from what you would see on the BBC or whatever back in the day, it really kind of stuck with me. And then kind of growing up, I joined a, a Super 8 film club thing that was uh, was happening in Dublin. And we kind of ran around making kind of small Super 8 movies and that got me interested. And whenever I would buy a DVD, half the interest for me was like the commentary, the making of, all that kind of stuff fascinated me. So I've always been kind of interested in how films got made. So when I went to college, I did film production there. And when I came out, I went straight into the camera department, kind of started off as a trainee and worked my way up through the ranks there. I did about 15 years in the camera department in Ireland, and that covered everything from like international blockbuster movies to commercials to music videos. Got to do some stuff with U2, which is very cool because I'm a huge U2 fan. <laughs> and yeah, I got to meet some amazing people. But around 2010, 2011, I was just finding that a little creatively frustrating because it's primarily technical kind of work that you're doing. And I wanted to try my hand at making my own thing, and I got a chance to pitch to the Irish Film Board, which is like a, a government organization that tries to help people make films in Ireland. And incredibly, when I pitched them the idea for showrunners, they said yes and, and gave me some money and let me do it. And this began an odyssey that has changed my life a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and going back to your inspirations and growing up watching TV, what do you feel caught your eye about these American shows compared to more local British or European content? Everything. Uh, production value to start off with, just because the budgets, you could see the budgets were there and they were up on screen and people were able to do things that you just couldn't possibly do back home. But even in terms of storytelling, like... One of my earliest memories of watching a show is like classic Star Trek burnt into my memory is the Spock's brain episode. You know that one where they remove him and he kind of turns into a zombie and they have to move him around and Bones has to learn from a machine how to replace his brain. And you just never, ever see storytelling like this on the BBC. Also, the fact that everything seemed to be bathed in this amazing glow of effervescent sunshine that we never had back home, you know, was another thing. But also, it's kind of, yeah, the, the storytelling was markedly different. Like, a lot of the British drama we would get was very kind of kitchen sink. You know, it was very gritty. It was very socially based in terms of what was happening in the country. Whereas a lot of the American drama seemed much more escapist and aspirational. 
and that was a very marked kind of difference from the very beginning. And was it difficult to find work in Ireland, or was it pretty easy to move around Europe and, and England and that kind of thing to, to find that kind of film and TV work, or what was it like on the ground? Starting off or now? Uh, a little of both. Uh, well, when, when I was starting off, things were very difficult. There was very little film or television production in Ireland. One of the reasons that I gambled on trying to go down that road is when I came out of college, the film board was started, and that was the first real kind of government-directed effort to try and grow an industry in some way. But it's taken nearly 20, 25 years for that to kind of happen. So yeah, in, th in those days, there was like maybe one or two films shot in Ireland over the whole course of a year. However, at that time, the pay rates were good enough that people could actually survive yeah. doing that as well. Where we're at now in Ireland is that there's a, a huge amount of production. Ireland's become a massive production hub for both American high-end and British TV. So in the last year, we had Vikings, Into the Badlands, Krypton, Game of Thrones, Night Flyers, all shooting in Ireland on top of whatever either indigenous or international features were coming in. So we're now at the point where we have hugely experienced crews. We have like DPs and editors who travel all over the world to become in demand. Um, there's a very famous camera operator in Ireland called Des Whelan, who Tim Burton takes him on every job he does. So like that, that kind of, that, the profile is, has grown hugely. And, and now like a lot of networks and studios feel very comfortable. Plus there's the tax breaks that are provided there, which are helpful and incentive. But there is a real issue that's growing all over Europe, uh, the UK and Ireland at the moment, which is studio space, because mm -hmm. there is so much production happening because Marvel and Lucasfilm and Disney have basically booked out all the state space in the UK for <laughs> up till 2021, I think. Wow. There's a real scramble at the moment for, for studio space. I noticed with interest there just the other day a story broke in Variety here that there's a company in the UK called Rebellion who are video game company and they're also a comics publisher they published 2000 ad which is the home of judge dread but they've bought a 150 million studio that they're converting into their own space this they want to use for doing their own judge dread tv series but they are also aware that there's such a demand for studio space and this place is just right outside london that they're going to make money out of it either way you know wow that's fascinating and going back to you how did you become interested in transitioning into a more directorial and producing space? Well, like I said, there was a degree of creative frustration from kind of working in a purely technical realm. Also, I always say one of the best film skills that you can go to is actually be crew mm -hmm. for a period of time, because you get to see the best and the worst of how things are made and the best and the worst approaches that people can take as directors and writers and producers and whatever. So I try to take some of that. It's harder to apply to documentary because there's no blueprint in terms of a script when you're working. When I originally came over to LA to start on Showrunners, which is around end of 2010 somewhere, I didn't know anyone here, really. I didn't know how to go about getting crew or where, where was the best place to go and hire gear. I knew I couldn't afford to go to Panavision, which was about the only retail outlet here that I knew. The one meeting I did have set up was Jane Espenson had very kindly agreed to have lunch with me. And we sat down uh, in the Arclight in Hollywood there. I think she said she she had half an hour. She was still there talking with me an hour and a half later, which was very kind. And at the end of it, she kind of said to me, you know, um, what is this that you're trying to do? Is it a magazine article? Is it a book? Whatever. And I was saying, no, it's a documentary. And I want to go into writer's rooms. And I want to show the whole process. And I want to be able to talk to network heads and... She was saying, I don't think that will really happen. And she kind of laid out a number of different reasons why. And yeah, we hit all those speed bumps along the way. But 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was such a huge undertaking, especially coming in from overseas, not knowing anyone. Can you just walk us through, I guess, just the, an overview of how showrunners all happened and came together? Uh, with great difficulty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of a step-by-step thing. It was very, very difficult to get anyone's attention at the start because I had no track record coming over here. And like I said, I didn't really know anybody. So basically what I was doing was going to every kind of writer's panel that I could and trying to doorstop people on the way out and say, hey, is there any way that we could possibly talk to you about taking part or doing something like this? A friend of mine very kindly lent me their password for Studio System. <laughs> and I started taking numbers and literally cold calling shows and saying, hey, I'm this guy from Ireland who's a huge TV nerd who would love to do this kind of thing. And eventually, in a weird way, the being Irish thing was kind of slightly beneficial because it caught people's eye or ear in a way because a lot of people couldn't understand why I would be interested, <laughs> particularly. And then when we the first person kind of leads you to the second person, the second to the third, and then we kind of had enough people to kind of cut this like mini little trailer thing. And we put that out to all the writers' assistants that we knew at that time. And they kind of spread it to other people and other people. So then I started to find when I was still cold calling and I started to explain, people would go, oh, no, okay, I've seen that or whatever, you know, which was helpful. From start to finish, filming took two years. And we started from begging people to take part to finishing with J.J. Abrams and people ringing us asking, could they take part? <laughs> so that was a nice cycle. So you you secured all those high-level people through sort of this snowball effect of recommendations. Yeah, you know, and and there there was real word of mouth from showrunner to showrunner to a certain extent because trying to get in rooms and stuff is not easy. And people are very wary for very appreciable reasons. After we'd done one or two rooms, the next room we went into, the showrunner said to us, no, I heard you guys were cool. (laughs) So it was like, you know, people were talking a little bit at that stage and, and we'd kind of earned the trust a little bit at that stage and like you know i mean i was super careful about not shooting the walls or the boards and stuff like that and if we did i made sure like that they were banked in the the safest place that i could until way after episodes had aired and stuff i think if you're respectful and don't annoy people and and don't kind of make them feel like they've wasted their time by allowing you to do this that trust building exercise can pay off in ways that you don't necessarily expect. Yeah. And how did you take all those lessons of the writer's room and then import them back to Ireland? How was that transition after the documentary, after your own journey and what you took from that and wanted to import to your own country? The US writer's room model does not exist at all in Ireland. It doesn't really exist in the UK either, to be honest. That's a function of a number of things. One, it's a budgetary thing because Productions over there just don't have the kind of money necessarily to do it. But also it's a function of the fact that generally episode orders are much lower. Um, So if you're doing a series and it's like between four to six or maybe eight on the high end, you can potentially have one writer complete that or one or two writers. A lot of the BBC shows I know would maybe if if it's a four or six order, they would max out at maybe three writers. So there isn't really the need for it to a certain extent. The thing is, though, writers have become more and more aware of how beneficial it actually is to have the process. Hardest thing in the world to do is be sitting in a room on your own with a laptop, banging your head against the wall. So because there was a lot of interest in actually trying to do this, I approached Screen Skills Ireland and said, I think maybe I could get a showrunner or some people over from the US to do something here where we could kind of set up a room 
give some Irish writers an experience of what that might be like. So we ended up doing two different versions of that. One we did where it was like the target was to create a show from scratch in the room over three days. That's a little difficult when you have 10 or 11 people in a room and everybody's vying for this idea, that idea. Now, eventually, uh, Matthew Carnahan, who was the showrunner who came over, who very kindly did that room for us. He basically had to step in and kind of go, okay, this is the idea we're running from. Let's try and break that down or whatever. But at the end of that, they actually ended up with an idea that everybody in the room was very excited about. The next room that we ran was more, everybody came in with their own pilot idea and kind of pitched it. And Matthew gave feedback on what he thought was good, what work needed to be done or whatever. And then we took a couple of those and then tried to develop them. But we got two of them to the point where they were actually pitched to networks here in the US as well. Everyone who took part in those rooms really enjoyed it. And all the feedback was so positive about how useful it is to be in like an incubator kind of a thing where people can bounce ideas off each other and whatever. The only thing that we had to be slightly aware of is a legal thing called chain of title, whereby if an idea originates in a room, who owns it, what way is it developed and whatever. But that kind of worked out okay as well. Yeah, interesting. And uh, how did you select the participants for the program? Were they working writers? Were they people who were relatively unknown at the time? So generally what the organization over there is trying to do is help people who have some experience. So most of the people that were in the rooms would have had at least some produced work up to that point. There were one or two people that were complete novices to a certain extent. And actually that was the thing that both Matthew and myself kind of stressed that we wanted to try and have a balance where we could at least get one or two people into the room that like were right at the beginnings of their careers. But to be honest with you, this experience is probably more useful for people who do have some produced work who are possibly in a situation where they already have representation. There's an opportunity for them to take this and work it into a pitch or whatever it is where they might have a project specifically in mind that they're trying to pull the information in for. And certainly the most recent thing that we've done where we actually brought three Irish writers over here to the US and I got them in into rooms on two different Netflix shows and we also got them on set with Big Bang Theory with the writers there and stuff. We had 400 applications for three places because there was so much interest in, in people trying to do that. So we had set the bar very high there in terms of who was selected to come over. But we got three really, really great writers two of whom were also uh, filmmakers in their own right as well. And they found that a, an amazing kind of eye-opening process. You know, First of all, the fact that writers get respect here, which <laughs> they're not actually yeah. shown a whole great deal of back home. But. That's funny. Well, to that point, I feel like we are all uh, internationals here. We all left, to some extent, our own industries uh, to be uh, working in America and in an environment that predominantly, as you said, respects writers, whereas internationally, it's either the producer that gets more of the power or the director, depending on the medium. Yeah, I, I can remember, I was at, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Edinburgh International TV Festival, but that's a big event that happens every year there. And I was lucky enough to get invited over. We, we screened Sharon is there, and because Ron Moore was there that year with Outlander, he agreed to come to our screening and do a Q&A and whatever. But Ron was part of a panel that happened earlier on in the day with a number of different British writers, one of whom, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, is a very famous English writer called Tony Jordan, who did a show called Dickensian there a while ago for the BBC, which was a mix where he brought in every character from all of Dickens' novels and mixed them into this kind of hyper-real version of, of Dickens' world. But they were all sitting in awe at what Ron had to say about how much power he had, how much authority, how much say, 
the budgets that he kind of had to work with and whatever. And there were also, interestingly, on that panel, two producers, one from ITV, one from BBC. And their argument was for why they don't cede power to the writers in this situation is primarily that it's their money. And they feel that they can run their money better than a writer can. That writers in the UK system are not really familiar enough with running a budget. But that's a learned skill that can happen. I, I know a number of people here have come up through the room. The first time they get to be showrunner, it can all be a little overwhelming because you're not used to everything else that you suddenly have to deal with. And one of the issues can be budgets and budget meetings. But that's what an, an, an experienced line producer and other people around you are for right. to a certain extent as well. So I, I don't really buy that argument. I think they just don't want to give... They're afraid, I think, to a certain extent, what will happen if they cede the power to the writers in the same way that they do under, under the American system. However, a lot of Irish writers and English writers and all across Europe are starting to claim the word showrunner and apply it to themselves all the time. And they want it applied to them in the press all the time because they think even the word helps. It helps differentiate them from just being a kind of a faceless writer behind whatever the show is. And certainly, like, Netflix are making great strides in, in this regard all across Europe at the moment because they've started doing exclusive deals with German and French and Spanish showrunners. Netflix have built a massive studio in Madrid called Ciudad de la TV, where they have 300 permanent crew employed, and they're putting a number of different shows through there. This is partially also, I think, to try and head off. There's a new EU ruling thing that's come down for Netflix and Amazon that any country that you're going to operate in, 30% of your broadcasting has to be local production. But to be honest with you, they were moving in this direction anyway. And two of the biggest shows on the European Netflix platforms have been Money Heist, which is a Spanish series, and Dark, which is a German series. So there is an audience. From my own take, uh, I'm from France, and I know that in France for decades now, on the cinema end, that percentage of we need to have maybe 30 to 50% of content originally locally produced is a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, and now it's interesting to see it move also in the TV world, uh, because people are realizing the, the importance of that content. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, Cannes and Netflix have had their issues <laughs> all, over the years. I think Netflix are also starting to move a little bit. I think it's been interesting what they've been doing with Roma, for example. Over, over this kind of current release strategy. Um, so maybe there is some wiggle room on both sides there to a certain extent. I mean, it's in their interests as broadcasters to be able to provide programming that happens locally. For instance, uh, just yesterday on Netflix in the US, there appeared uh, an Irish animation, uh, I think called Angelus Christmas, which is a beautiful uh, little Irish film done by um, the Academy Award-winning Brown Bag Films. It's great to see something like that, be able to kind of make it out into the wider universe. Part of my push back home at the moment is to try and help writers get to positions where they can actually get in the door at Netflix and pitch stuff or Prime or Hulu is a, a, a much harder kind of thing from this end because they don't really have an international footprint at the moment. But like as the whole game changes over the next year with Disney Plus and Warner Media and, and Apple and everybody else is going to be coming online, do you feel the avenues are only the new OTTs and streaming platforms? Or no, I, no I, I, I go out of my way to make sure that people don't forget about broadcast and basic cable because Irish people have had some sales there recently. There's a very successful Irish writer director called Jared Bard who sold a pilot there to FX recently. So, yeah, don't. I mean, you know, those people have a lot of money to spend as well. 
even though the numbers are down, there are still a lot of people watching broadcast. Just broadcast, I think, is it's a harder thing to do in the auteur-driven kind of writing era that we're in. I also think potentially the box of procedural or the box of you must produce 22 can be off-putting potentially to some people in this day and age. Even the Netflix model seems to be shrinking back from 13 to 10, becoming a more kind of standard episodic order. So like the graft of trying to push 22 out a year can be off-putting. At the same time, there is potentially more money to be made there Mm -hmm. as well. And like I said, you can still reach a big audience. And those networks feel very much that they need to be competing. Having spoken to people who work at some of them, they do feel this ground's been lost. To be honest, at the moment, a number of people have said to me, it it is a seller's market to a certain extent because there are so many people that you can go to and buy. How long that continues at the rate that it's currently happening, I'm not sure because, I mean, Netflix are buying at a huge rate, but that's because they know that they're going to be losing a great deal of their library over the next 18 months or so. So they're racing to try and get to 50-50 between license and original over the next four years, and, which is why they're spending so much money. Yeah, and they're also trying to get those big names attached to all those projects. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, there is a war going on there in terms of, and, and it's not even just on the writing end, it's on the exec end where there's, I mean, Fox, there's a lawsuit going on because they've been poaching so many execs from Fox. Mm-hmm. But I did find it interesting that WBTV there recently went to Greg Berlanti and said, we know you've got two years left on your contract, but here's $200 million to sign up for the next five because we can't lose you. So, yeah, th- th- those deals are becoming more and more important. You know, WBTV has been traditionally the biggest studio out of all of them uh, in, in terms of the hit rate and the amount of money that they generate and whatever. But the future is going to certainly be far more competitive in that regard. Yeah. I mean, well, there has been this growing wave of high-quality international television, and especially coming out of Europe. What do you think has changed in the last 10 or 20 years to enable this kind of growth and visibility? I, I think the reality of what's happening in terms of the competition they're facing is dawning on people. Game of Thrones, to a certain extent, is partially responsible for, one, raising the bar of what's possible on television, but two, also raising the bar of what is the aesthetic that people expect from television. So we've now gotten into an ever-escalating arena of what television costs to make and what people expect. So if you're going to watch a movie with every episode that you make, then your budgets are going to have to be $8 million up minimum, right? That's a very expensive proposition for European broadcasters. That's why... A lot of the kind of international co-production models broke up, especially when Netflix and Prime actually started getting involved in a lot of those as well, because the costs were significant. But it's a zero-sum game because it can't keep escalating. Like, there was a very interesting thing there recently at the Royal Television Lectures where a number of execs from the BBC were kind of basically almost waving the white flag and saying, we can't keep doing this, so we're actually going to come all the way back down and we're going to start making some more, far more grounded kind of almost going back to what they were doing before in terms of kitchen sink drama. Now, at the same time, they've had a massive hit with The Bodyguard, which I think has done very well on Netflix over here as well. Mm -hmm. And The Bodyguard is slightly unusual, I would say, for BBC drama. It's not normally the kind of area they're in, particularly. But it's a good show, and and it's worth watching. I would be a little concerned about where everything is going at the moment because Mm -hmm. almost no one can really compete with Netflix or Prime in terms of the money they have. Maybe Disney. But even Disney seems to be, from what, I, what I'm hearing about it, wanting to rely a great deal on their library 
yeah. rather than a whole ton yeah, of new original programming. Yeah, so you think this is kind of a bubble that it might potentially uh, burst. It, it, it may potentially burst because where, where are things going to go, right? So at the moment, you've got a huge amount of people here in the US cord cutting to try and save money and they're saying, okay, no, I'll just get my Netflix and Prime and maybe my Hulu. But if you don't have to get your, your Disney Plus and your CBS All Access and your HBO Go and everything, yeah. suddenly Spencer the bill cable. just becomes insane. So I'm like, is the future some kind of a portal where you can, for 50 or 60 bucks a month, do an a la carte thing and just pick... X number of shows that you want to watch. It's not sustainable, as far as I'm aware, for everyone to have their own OTT service. Right. Um, I mean, I'll go back to the bundles and the cable. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we'll, we'll almost end up back where we were, where exactly. people were complaining about it in the first place. That's um, kind of funny. You've already kind yeah. of got that there with like Hulu and, yeah. and Amazon. You can add on HBO or you can add yeah, on yeah, whatever. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Do you feel like there's a little bit of a brain drain coming from all those OTT and high-end services? Not just on you know the content itself but really the international writers uh, maybe from the uk and europe who are moving to america essentially and working on those projects as opposed to working with local broadcasters like the bbc i think there was a bigger risk of that earlier i think that this new directive from the eu is actually going to give people what they feel is the possibility to maybe actually stay where they are and do work that they they want to be able to do at budgets that they would like to be able to work at there's always a degree of appeal of like coming over here and doing something for a network here. However, I know a number of writers who've watched episodes and think that's too close to reality <laughs> for them <laughs> and kind of feel like, well, you know, the sunshine's great and the money's great, but maybe not. At the moment, I think people can pick and choose a little bit. I mean, say if you're a writer in the UK at the moment and you already have a reasonably successful relationship with the BBC where you've produced, and like everything over there has to go through independent production companies as well. It's almost like third party, same as it is in Ireland. No one's commissioning writers directly, generally. You, you have to go through some kind of production entity. And there are a lot of very successful production companies, uh, both in Ireland and the UK, where people may feel happy enough at the same time, I've never met a writer yet who doesn't have an idea in the back of their head that they think, man, this would be awesome on HBO yeah. or, you know, something like that. You know, I would not expect any kind of a mass exodus, especially now when they're watching Netflix going around Europe, making exclusive deals with showrunners in each territory and yeah. saying, no, I will actually fund you where you are and, and doing what you want. Yeah. You know? and, and what is the industry like for emerging writers over in the UK and, and Europe? You know, in the US, obviously, there's a lot of opportunities to be an assistant and come up through that track. How do you get a start as a writer over there? My primary experience here would be in relation to Irish writers who would find this entire process heartbreaking and depressing and, and very difficult. Yeah. Here, there is a, an actual career track that you can do in a career progression that you can kind of see. I'm not saying it's easy to get in or start off here either, but there is a ladder to a certain extent. Back home, there isn't of any sort. So everyone is trying to scramble around doing whatever they can, whether that's like writing soap opera to pay the bills while they work on a feature script or a TV pilot that they're hoping to try and sell somewhere else. Uh, I know people who are writing comics to try and you know keep them going. One of the new markets that has emerged over the last couple of years there because of the huge success of animation companies like Brown Bag is a lot of Disney animated shows are being done there. So there is a way in potentially for writers there that they can get some kind of TV credits behind them. But in terms of real high-end drama in the Irish market, there's only ever two or three shows made a year. And on both of the previous ones that I'm aware of, most of the writing has been done by one to two people. So it's very difficult that's why, in a weird kind of a way, up until recently, a lot of writers have focused on feature 
because at least there there is development money that you can find there is potentially a route to getting a film made that looks a little easier than trying to get tv made now that gear has shifted over the last year or two because tv has just become so heavily focused but it's certainly something that i'm trying to push because basically if, if you're a writer in ireland and, and the uk to a certain extent there's about six doors that you can knock on mm-hmm. in terms of broadcasters that you can go to but I'm trying to refocus people and say, no, television is now an entirely global market. So look at everywhere else that you can possibly go. You don't just have to knock on those six doors. And to be honest with you, three of those doors are a waste of your time knocking on because they hardly have money to make anything. So, yeah, it, it, it can be very frustrating, but breakthroughs are starting to happen. And I think, like, for example, John Carney, who's a very successful Irish writer-director who did Sing Street and stuff like that, he now has a show with uh, Amazon Prime called Modern Love that just attached down Hathaway and stuff as star. So there are people that are making it happen, and that's the door-opening event as well for other people to kind of follow through behind. And I think it's also a generational thing where, you know, in a few years, maybe there's going to be this apprenticeship model like in the U.S. with the assistant network that, you know, it's just going to take time to build. Because yeah, we're starting I, I, from I scratch. mean, my hope is that once Netflix ordered the first original Irish drama or comedy or whatever it is, that that opens a new door and sets up a whole new system, basically, for how writers can come in and work and that there is a system. And I I know many writers at home who are chomping at the bit for that kind of opportunity. They want to work in rooms. They want to be able to work on more high-end stuff. We have a number of hugely talented people back there. It's very frustrating that they're not kind of at the moment getting the openings they can. But I do think that is changing. I was bringing up the assistant model because yeah. most rooms here have writer's assistants, yeah. whereas in Europe, that's not necessarily the case. But all these things are uh, evolving and just taking time. Yeah. But do you think there's maybe a risk of a tipping point where the showrunner idea is not just so prevalent, but uh, so important because uh, we have all the overall deals that we mentioned previously? And that may create this idea that, oh, only this one person can do everything, kind of like the true detective model where you have this very altruistic approach of it's only one writer writing all of it. Do you feel there's a tipping point where we might regress back to just giving the reins to this one person, even though it is a writer, but it's still only one person as opposed to a team of writers? I don't think so. And I think the main reason why that won't happen is that television is just too hard to make. I don't know any showrunner who doesn't enjoy the benefit of the room and the team around them and the fact that they can lean on other people and depend on other people to do things. The workload is, I mean, the tonnage is a real issue. You know, some people say, okay, well, if you're only doing 10 episodes, that's so much easier. Well, that depends on what kind of 10 episodes you're doing. (laughs) You know, Um, it can be a very challenging story to tell. It could be a hugely technically difficult, logistically challenging production to mount. So for me, it's like it's important to have like the guy who's captaining the ship, but I think it's important for him to have the people around him that he can lean on and trust and depend. And you know, most showrunners like they're not even getting that much time in the room because there's 90 million other things to be doing. So you know, they need a, an EP or somebody that they can trust to also be running the room and taking care of things while they're not there. Most showrunners want a team of writers around them who are really good that so they don't have to be constantly rewriting people. The auteur thing, I always say the greatest example of that in a way is J. Michael Straczynski on Babylon 5, where he basically wrote almost every single episode of that show. But why would anybody want to do that in reality? Because <laughs> you're just going to drive yourself insane. And the, the auteur thing, 
the showrunner in a room, everyone in that room is working to the vision of what the showrunner is bringing. It, it still is auteur-led, even though other people are writing, and people are trying to find the voice of what the show is. So I don't think you lose auteurism just because there's a room and there's, there's other writers involved. So government funding is a big part of a lot of these smaller screen industries like the UK, Australia, France, unlike the US that's run mainly on private investment. What is that process like to secure government funding and support? Well, in Ireland, again, which is where I would kind of have the most experience of this, it's challenging because so many people are applying and there's a limited budget. What used to be the Irish Film Board has been renamed recently to be Screen Ireland, And one of the reasons they did that is because they're starting to understand that the focus is also shifting to include television in a huge way. But their budget is somewhere around 20 to 22 million euro a year. And that's trying to cover all bases in terms of documentary, drama, film, television, animation. And it's divided up into different programs where they're trying to help people who are trying to get their first short film off the ground or where they're trying to help feature development or trying to help somebody who's trying to find money for an international co-production for a TV idea. There's multiple different areas of focus that they need to have. What's kind of started happening a little bit is, for some people back home, it almost feels like they've become a studio, which is not their function, and they can't operate in that manner. So that's the challenge, if you like, is the fact that there's only one entity for everyone to go to. There is an additional entity in Ireland, which is called the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, but it's primarily funding material that is designed primarily for an Irish audience. So it needs to be stories about Ireland or about Irish people or have an Irish focus or interest. So that's kind of limiting when you're talking about a global market. And really, in this day and age, scripts need to be as appealing to as wide an audience as they possibly can be. But in fairness, it's it's also challenging for the people who are running the agency because they want to help as many people as they possibly can. But you have limited amounts of time and limited amount of finance. It can lead to a frustrating kind of point where certain production companies and certain writers and directors don't feel that they're getting the support that they should be getting. But at the same time, my own personal belief in this is that you, you can't live under that system forever either. At some point in time, you need to get to a point where you are commercially supportable in some way, or otherwise, what's the point? Mm -hmm. Like if you constantly have to go back to the same initial funder 10 years down the line where they've been funding everything you're doing, well, then are you really growing commercially in a sustainable way that you can find funding from somewhere else? Yeah, I can definitely relate to that with the the Australian industry. There's basically like a, a federal funding body and there's one for each state. And so right. that's where everyone's going to to try and get their projects funded. And a lot of them do have that kind of stipulation that it needs to be Australian content or about Australians or and that kind of thing. And as, as noble as that is, it ends up kind of shooting itself in the foot because then that tra- content doesn't travel internationally. It does entirely. Yeah. And it, it also, for me, it kind of treats the audiences kind of a bit insular in a way that they aren't really, you know, it's like, Irish people, as I'm sure Australian people, have interests beyond what happens in your own country and to your own people. We're watching that all the time on other channels. So why would you not be willing to support some idea? And also, like, you know, I mean, we've had some really great successes in terms of feature films in recent years between projects like The Young Offenders and The Guard, movies like that, which have also travelled internationally. And The Young Offenders actually led to a a very successful spin-off comedy series that's on BBC and RTE now. 
but that's very broad material in terms of it's trying to speak to a, a much larger audience and i'm like why would you not want to be successful yeah there's also the language aspect because in france uh, we have the same system where it's government funded uh, system but the french language is obviously uh <laughs> the main component of it mm. which can't really be exported uh, that yeah, well I, i don't find that any better say so I, i watch marseille Yeah, uh, I really enjoy it. I'm, I'm more than happy to read the subtitles because it means I get to hear the wonderful accents at the same time. And Absolutely. Stuff. I've loved French film uh, for, for, for many years. My mum my was a real Francophile, was obsessed with everything to do with France uh, and French film. That shouldn't be necessarily... A oh, I'm not, I'm not thing, saying it, it is. I'm just saying it's like one added element to yeah, it that yeah, right. they block international yeah, markets. I mean, I mean, certainly, I mean, we have a broadcaster back in Ireland that is completely Irish language. If you, if you want to sell a drama to them, it's going to have to be in the Irish language. Now, they do have the option to also re-record or originally record the dialogue and redub and whatever. I know for some people find that a little frustrating. So why do you think it is that television from the U.S. is so successful and resonates with so many people? And, and what can we learn from that internationally? I think television, drama and comedy, as we understand it, was invented here. It's been beamed around the world for the last 50, 60 years. So I think people are, have almost been programmed to, this is what television is, to a certain extent. Everywhere else around the world that it's grown up, it's born of that model to a certain extent, or influenced by that model. I think there are great, great storytellers here. Aaron Sorkin, Noah Hawley, Ron Moore... Damon Lindelof. Plus, people are able to tell stories, I think, on, on such a large canvas here. Terry Winter told me once that um, he put up a, a sign in his writer's room on Boardwalk Empire, which he had lifted from The Sopranos. And it was basically the motto for everything they did was be entertaining. And I think that drives a huge amount of American television in a way that it doesn't necessarily drive a huge amount of international television where people can sometimes come at a story and say, this is a story that needs to be told or this is a story that socially applies to this particular moment or movement or whatever. But the raison d'etre for it is not necessarily to be entertaining. So you think it's more of a introspection take rather than... I, I think it can be. Uh, I th I th again, I think that's something that's changing a little bit as, as more and more writers look to global as opposed to local. But I, I think primarily that's what audiences are looking for. Now, you can educate me at the same time. You can inform me about things at the same time. But at a core level, I need to be entertained by this to really continue to be watching you know that's why uh, writing for television is such an extraordinary skill to be able to produce multiple episodes over multiple years of storytelling i remember andrew marlowe who, who did castle saying to me the great thing about being able to do something like this is you can have an extended conversation with the culture and one of one of the key things i think that's very important for television as well is is characters people respond to characters much more than they do story if they're if you're able to get them to invest in a character be empathetic care about a character they'll stay with you much longer even if the story hits speed bumps along the way they'll stay because they're invested in the characters you know and i think american tv does that exceptionally well what are your thoughts on international tv co-productions especially now that we have ott's globally uh, a lot of them are moving towards productions not just within america itself but across countries international co-production i think is essential 
again, just because television has become so expensive to, to actually make. So it's the only way that a lot of things are, are able to get financed in this day and age. Certainly, I know uh, there are multiple Irish broadcasters and UK broadcasters that are regularly trying to do co-productions. In some ways, that market is getting a little harder because for the last few years, Netflix and Prime were going in there and now they're pulling out because they've gotten to a place where they just want to own everything exclusively, which is why I say one of the reasons why the BBC is kind of looking at maybe a change in direction in regard, with the exception of Doctor Who. But yeah, essential, absolutely. It comes with certain issues as well, logistically in terms of how the spend breaks down about, you know, oh, we've got to post in Brussels, but we've got to shoot in Madrid and we've got to do this to tick all of the boxes that apply for how you're actually building that money together. And it can add complication where there doesn't necessarily need to be. But I would say the, the pros outweigh the cons because it's the difference between getting something made or not made at the end of the day. We've seen a lot of formats being adapted internationally. You know, a show is successful perhaps in the UK or Australia and then the US is remaking it over here. What are your thoughts on that kind of process? And is that ultimately a, you know, a good thing for everyone or should we be doing more original stuff? Well, look, there, there are some very successful examples of this. The premium one that jumps off my head is Gideon Raff, like the, the Israeli format that became Homeland on Showtime, which has been a hugely successful series for them all over the world. I know a lot of writers who are saying to me at the moment, if you're going to pitch an original idea at the moment, people are laughing at you because everything, they're looking to be IP-driven. And that's horrifically sad <laughs> uh, on many levels. No offense to the wonderful people at CBS and Peter Lenkov and the rest of it, but I can't watch those MacGyvers. Like, that, that for me is TV from a bygone era, and it doesn't really work when... You, now, obviously I'm wrong because people are watching it, and it's selling all over the world, but I'm kind of like, would he prefer himself to be telling original stories, different stories with characters that he's created from scratch himself? I, I, I don't know, maybe not. Maybe he loves what he's doing no disrespect whatsoever you're saying it's not really pushing the the creative medium yeah i I mean now look there's a a counter argument that i've heard some people make as well whereas there's a lot of original tv out there at the moment 90 percent of what's on netflix in terms of netflix originals are shows that we haven't really seen the like of before that happen in arenas that we haven't really seen before for for tv shows to be set in stuff like glow or orange is the new black or whatever so the original end of things is catered for and pulling shows from IP helps, particularly maybe on broadcast in terms of the marketing and whatever, because nothing is harder than launching a new show on broadcast at the moment. I think the fail rate is still 84, 85% for new shows. So I, I appreciate the reasoning behind it. I do think people generally prefer the new to the reboot. And then there's also like approaches that you can take, like Noah Hawley has taken with Fargo, where okay, you've taken a mothership idea, but you've really reinvented it entirely for television. Yeah, I'm fine with that if people want to do that. Or, or, or like what Ron did with Battlestar, where it's really a complete reinvention of what the show was. My personal preference is towards original rather than IP, but I, I understand the marketing and the business logistics of why people are doing. But I, do, I, I think it's a bigger problem in film than it is in TV. I, th- I think it really is killing the film industry slowly that they're doing this at this kind of the franchise studio level or whatever. I think the entire middle ground of film has been killed at this point in time. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of writers have moved to TV and started. Right. Absolutely. Know, 
That's basically in the independent film model is now in TV. Essentially. Yeah. How do you see writers' rooms evolving internationally? Is the showrunner model the natural way of running TV, or do you see other forms emerging? I think the showrunner model is the aspirational model that I think a lot of people are trying to, to get to. And that's because it's been proven to work. It works very, very well. And that's the way that television has been made here successfully. Going back to the, the original showrunners of, I guess, like the Gene Roddenberry's and Rod Serling's of the world. So, yeah, I don't know why someone would want to try and reinvent the wheel. And like I say, anecdotally for me, anyway, having spoken to people in the television business from Israel to France to Spain to Germany, this is what they all want to be doing. What do you think are some of the potential flaws of the showrunner model? I know on a sort of a societal level, there are issues with diversity in writers' rooms because we have a certain subset of people who have been showrunners and then they are the ones who have the power to make those hiring decisions and things like that. But is there anything you think that could be improved about the showrunner model or could work a little better right now? Well, I think there are a lot of people trying to address the diversification issue. For example, the last three rooms that I've been in are three of the most diverse rooms I've ever been in. And that certainly does come down from the showrunner. And sometimes they have to fight a little bit for that as well. And there's also been kind of interesting choices as well. And for example, I, I, I was with Mike Kelly's doing a new uh, series for Netflix called What If that stars Ronnie Zellweger. He had brought in a novelist who had, uh, and I think she was a playwright as well, who had never written for television before because he wanted at least one of the writers in the room to be coming at things from a kind of a different angle. And I, I think stuff like that is, is great to be happening as well. In terms of flaws, the biggest flaw in a way is just the workload that you're putting on a showrunner's shoulders. The fact that they are having to spend a great deal of time away from the room, that their focus is kind of carved up over the course of a day into a number of different areas. So things can kind of slide through the cracks as a result of that, but that's like I'm saying, where the, the rest of the team around you are really, really important and kind of kick in and that you've got people kind of watching your back to try and make sure that things don't happen. N networks won't do this because of the, of the money situation or whatever, but if people were able to have a little bit more, uh, and two or three extra days per episode to film, if they had slightly longer lead-in times in the writer's room, I'm primarily talking about broadcast here now rather than cable or, or streaming, I think that would greatly help in, in, in that regard. Also, I, I suppose some people are better suited to being showrunners than other. If you have difficulty in dividing your brain up in that way, and not everyone can do it, and especially if, if you've come through all the different layers of the writer's room, and the first time you're handling it, the whole thing can be very overwhelming. I remember one person telling me their first day on the job, they came in and there was 800 emails. And they didn't know who to respond to first or where the priorities were, or I just almost got completely overwhelmed from the first minute of day one. And also trying to learn that navigation between the politics of the studio and the network and trying to please both masters and be very aware that even if you created this show, you don't own the show. And, you know, if they want rid of you, they can get rid of you. It's such a dance 
to kind of do that job. I find it interesting that how much the responsibilities change once you do reach that top level. You can yeah. go along the whole way being a great writer and that's all you have to really be good yeah. at. And then as soon as you hit that point, suddenly you have to know how to manage people and how to run a multi-million dollar industry and, and yeah. all yeah, that basically like being a CEO of a company. Yeah, exactly. And not everyone is actually cut out for doing it, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, the, the other interesting thing that's been happening a lot recently is there is so much demand for content is people have never done anything are getting a shot to go straight in at the top. And in that situation, generally, you know, the studio or, or the network, whoever, want to partner them with a more experienced producer. And that generally does not work out well for either party because you constantly end up in that battle where the writer's going, I want to do this, and the producer's going, you can't afford to do that, or you don't have the time to do that. And the realities don't, don't quite mesh, you know. Uh, I, I know a number of shows that have come off the air over the years just because even though people were watching, the internal relationships and the dynamics were so horrific that they just they didn't want to continue on. Yeah, I guess it takes away from the whole point of putting the authority with one person who knows what they're doing. Yeah, but but it is difficult if the person who's created the show goes in and they actually don't really know what they're doing. Of course, But yeah. they right. think they do. Most of the rooms I've been in that have been the most successful have been this division of power between an experienced producer and an experienced writer who yeah. can focus on the creative aspect. So yeah. it depends on who I, 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 I tell you what great possibility is, and, and just going back to flaws in the system or whatever, if you have a show that's run by two showrunners who are co-showrunning and they get on really well and they're able to divide, that the absolute yeah. perfect kind of thing. But it know? is rare. It is rare, yeah. Now, moving back to the international space, with more and more international co-productions happening, are you interested in exploring any other TV running markets, perhaps in Asia or South America? I mean, for sure, t television now today is a global business in the same way the movie industry is a global business and focus is shifting to, to kind of other markets and places. For example, I'm going to Berlin in January to kind of do a, a US television seminar event over there. And then I'm in Portugal in February and I'm in France in March. So this is because things are moving into a worldwide kind of space and everyone's focus to a certain extent is what's happening here and how that's being translated like across international markets. But I've spent quite a bit of time down in Buenos Aires over the years and they have a huge interest in American TV. There's a channel there called WB, which just plays American drama all 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Does it have the um, WB frog as well? <laughs> uh, not anymore, no. Uh, once upon a time, it may well have done. And certainly Brazil as well. When showrunners was happening, I did a lot of interviews with newspapers in Brazil and stuff because there was a, a big interest in American TV. So yeah, if anybody wants to invite me down to Brazil or Argentina or whatever to do talks, I'm, I'm, I'm all on for that. <laughs> so you mentioned you're kind of doing these talks all across the globe, but uh, what do you see for the future of your kind of showrunner US TV training programs and seminars? I try to partition a little bit as well because I, I don't actually want to stop being a filmmaker myself. So for example, I brought the writers over here. We did a kind of a, a two-week thing here with them. But the rest of the time that I've been here, I've been pitching myself new projects that I want to do. So while I love and enjoy the other end of things, it, that's not a road I want to go down entirely. Where I would love to, to be able to get to is that we can get a couple of Irish writers working on an international level in terms of high-end TV production. That's really the goal that I would like to be able to get to, that people can sell projects to here or to Netflix or Amazon, whatever it is, where, where they're in the local markets uh, when we get to that stage. That, that's really the ambition for me is to be able to kind of list off five or six people that I know that we've helped over a period of time get from basically 
I don't want to use the word being stuck in the local market, but catering solely for the local market to the point where they, they could have potentially a big hit show that people are watching all over the world. I think that's the dream for a writer anywhere. It's like, you know, I mean, no one goes out saying, I want to spend two years of my life making something that 10 people watch. You always want things to be seen as widely and embraced as much as possible. But yeah, I, w- I would love to get to the point where there is a big, successful Irish Netflix series that people all over the world are watching and it's winning multiple Emmy Awards and <laughs> all the rest of it. That would be cool. And uh, for yourself as a filmmaker, what are your kind of goals and plans for the future? There's two different projects that I'm pitching at the moment. One is a returnable doc series, which is also kind of based in the media arena. And the other one is a feature doc. And we'll see how things go. Funding documentary at the moment is not the easiest thing in the world to do, despite, weirdly, the fact that documentaries are doing quite well, generally, uh, more popular than they've ever been in some ways. When you're trying to do things independently at that level, it's a little difficult. Thankfully, the responses that we've gotten so far in terms of what we've been pitching have been very good. So fingers crossed, I will hopefully be able to split 2019 between making something and talking about making things. All right, before we go, we have a few final questions. Uh, number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> I binged Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix, and I was taken aback at how much I actually enjoyed it. I don't think I'm really the target demo for the show, but I was also kind of surprised at how dark that show went. Yeah. yeah. Um, from, you know, from the Black Masses and Sonic Rituals to the murder and necromancy and the last episode is almost like a mini full-blown kind of horror movie. I'm curious to see what they do with the winter special when that comes up in in a couple of weeks. As a former focus puller, how did you feel about the focus in the... (laughs) I have nothing but the greatest respect for focus pullers working in the HD world where everyone wants to shoot wide open all the time on long lenses rehearsals are going out the window because no one's the time so it's let's shoot the rehearsal let's shoot the rehearsal i've seen focus pullers break down in tears on set mm. because directors are sitting behind 24 inch hd monitors screaming about the slightest little like it is completely unforgiving now for a focus puller yeah. in fact if you watch now the whole thing of a focus puller standing beside a camera is gone they're there wrapped up in their own little monitor because they need to be watching everything Anyone will tell you this, that the hardest technical job on a film set, full stop, is the focus pullers. If people are willing to play around in that space, that uh, that's great. Uh, Mr. Mercedes, I kind of started watching that out of interest just because Brendan Gleeson was cast in the role. I thought they did a very good, very strong first season. I thought the second season, the idea of kind of trying to bring him back was not the best idea in the world. But I'm kind of happy they've gotten a third season where they've already stated they're going to go somewhere fresh in terms of story. I do love, I mean, shows like Homeland, I've loved even though seasons have been kind of up and down over the time. I think Billions is really interesting on Showtime as well. They kind of almost did a a soft reboot of the show at the end of season three. So I'm very Mm. curious to see where it's going to go in four. Anything written by Stephen Denight, I'll watch that in a happy. Um, we, I got, we were lucky enough to get spend a little bit of time in the Jupiter's Legacy room, and that's going to be an amazing show. There's a while to wait for it yet, but, yeah. but it's going to be it's going to be worth the wait. Was he on the early seasons of Daredevil as well? Was he running that? He ran season yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Season. yeah. Um, but he also uh, was the brain behind Spartacus, which yes, is my all-time favorite TV series. Yeah, yeah, same. So, any final advice for maybe aspiring writers or filmmakers out there? 
the kind of cliched kind of stuff of don't give up, I think is important to a certain extent because a half the job of, I think being a successful writer is persistence. It's very easy to get very frustrated with the system and how things work and trying to get representation, trying to get people to read you can be very difficult at the beginning. But I think self-belief, especially in that field, is incredibly important that you need to believe in yourself that what you're doing is actually good and that you're learning and developing and improving as, as you go along. I would say one of the great things about being in LA is the amount of writers events and panels and stuff that you can attend or podcasts like this. I would highly recommend people listen to the children of Tendu podcast mm. that Javi and Jose do. I think that's one of the best podcasts out there on, on writing. Certainly uh, the nerdist stuff that, that Ben Blacker has done is, is uh, uh, there's many people on there that are worth the listen. Many people have said to me, what, what's a really useful thing to do is take an episode of your favorite TV show, either write out the script for it or get the script for it. If you can online or whatever, and break down why that episode worked, what was beneficial, how it was structured, how lean they were on the dialogue. Um, I was actually kind of really stunned that um, we went to a, a taping of an episode of Big Bang Theory there a couple of weeks ago, and they gave us a script to kind of follow as they were taping, and the script was so lean. It was really just down to what is absolutely essential, because I've been lucky enough over the last year or two that people send me a lot of scripts to read, and people tend to put in a lot of dense detail and a lot of description and prose and stuff that's completely irrelevant and unnecessary. And it, it's never going to be anything that makes the screen at the end of the day. So one of the best pieces of advice that I think I've heard other people give and take and whatever is make it as lean as possible. The less is better, you know? Yeah, I'm big into reverse engineering as well. So glad yeah. you pointed that out. Before we go, do you have any resources you can recommend to our listeners, be it books, podcasts, films, anything? Okay, well, if I, if I can be hugely biased and start up by recommending our own <laughs> uh, uh, and saying uh, showing this documentary is available to watch on Prime at the moment. And if you're outside the US, it's available to download from showingisthemovie.com. And there is also uh, the showrunner's book written by Tara Bennett as well, uh, which is good. But yeah, like I was saying earlier on, that there are so many great podcasts. Third in Fairfax, that's definitely worth listening to. Here's a weird thing. I think writers should pay a lot of attention to what's actually happening in the business end of things at the moment as well. You should be aware to a certain extent of what's buying, what's selling, what people are potentially interested in. Not necessarily that this should be the driver, the focus for what you're actually writing, but just to be cognizant of potentially how far away you might be from where, where market is at the moment. So stuff like the Deadline podcast or, or even Deadline as a site or Variety Hollywood Reporter in terms of tracking what's selling, you know, what's going on over pilot season, I think it is a worthwhile thing to be aware of if you're trying to write for TV. So. And that wraps things up. Before we go, though, our PPTs competition is still open for submissions until March 2nd. That's less than three weeks away. So if you have a TV pilot teaser of APGs or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air and be eligible for our paper team mentorship. So thanks to everyone for tuning in and thanks to Des for joining us. Thank you, guys. Appreciate yeah. it. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 122. And if you want to leave us a review, you can do that at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all those reviews will help us attract new listeners and build our Paper Team community. Script Pipeline reviews screenplays and TV pilots to connect writers with Hollywood's top producers and managers. For over 20 years, the company has helped launch the writing careers of some of the industry's brightest talent, resulting in spec sales totaling over $7 million. Learn more at scriptpipeline.com.
And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Uh, where can people find you on social media? I'm at DC Ireland on Twitter. Our desktop showrunners on Instagram. Yeah, they're about the only two that I really do. If you have any uh, thoughts, feedback, opinions that you want to send over to us, you can do that at ask, A-S-K, at paperteam.co. Uh, what will we be doing next week, guys? Well, next week, we're actually off for President's Day, but we will be back Monday, February the 25th with this month's Paper Scraps slash Paper Tease feedback episode. All Paper right. Tease feedback episode. <laughs> Let me pronounce really? it correctly. <laughs> Struggling with this line, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see you all then, and hopefully Alex has recovered. <laughs> <laughs> see you in two weeks. See you then.